Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, we have a leading expert in the field of neuroleadership. She is a global executive coach and leadership specialist, and she's author of the fantastic book, The Leading Brain, Powerful Science-Based Strategies for Achieving Peak Performance. Welcome, Friederica Fabricius. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic to have you on the show. I've read the book, and what I absolutely loved about it, and what I thought was so important to share with our audience, is so many leadership books that we read are just the same old things rewritten and with new analogies but you've backed this up with neuroscience one of the things you talk about is the dna of peak performance it'd be great to understand that yes thank you everybody wants to achieve peak performance at work and there's actually just three ingredients you need to make that happen Um, and i like to call that fun fear and focus So first of all, when you work, you need to have fun. And I'm not speaking about the kind of after work fun or having a beer with your colleagues. I mean by that, that you should enjoy what you do. You should enjoy the tasks that you're performing at work. And when you do that, and when you truly enjoy your work, that's when your brain releases a substance called dopamine. And dopamine makes our brain more efficient and faster. It helps you to learn and to, um, it, it also improves the working of your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that you use for rational analytical thinking. So you can basically say, if you don't have fun at work, you're not performing at your best. Your colleagues might think that you're doing a great job, but based on your individual um, potential, you're lacking behind. So the first ingredient you need is fun. And usually um, we're having fun at work when we work on something we're truly good at. So when you have talent, you usually have fun as well. So you need fun, then you need the fear By this, I don't mean that you should be scared behind your desk and shivering and um, afraid of your boss or something like this. I mean that you need to be slightly over-challenged. If you're doing the same thing every day and going through the same routines and just go through the motions without having to think, then you're not doing your best. So your brain always needs you to be taking on slightly bigger challenges than you can handle. So you need to always go a bit out of your comfort zone. And when you do that, your brain releases a substance called noradrenaline, which makes your brain more efficient because noradrenaline makes you thrive. It makes you rise up to the challenge. Noradrenaline gives you the little bit of anxiety and anxiousness that puts you on the top of things. You can, for example, think of a situation where you had to present in front of an audience or when you're really, or when you're a top athlete, for example, you might be performing better at the game, at the match than when you're practicing because you know that there's a real challenge in the situation that gives your body the extra kick of noradrenaline, which you need. So you need the fun, you need the fear, but all of this is nothing if you don't have focus as well. 
if you think of athletes, you wouldn't expect them to check their phones while they are um, performing, right? While you're playing a tennis match, you don't expect somebody to check their phone in the middle of it to check for emails. But in the business world, that's what people do in the middle of meetings, in the middle of sitting at a concept and writing a paper. People check their phones, they check their emails, they get interrupted by colleagues. And when this happens, your brain cannot release acetylcholine, which is a substance which is released when you're fully focused. And when you don't have acetylcholine, you don't have focus, and then your brain cannot perform as its best either. So you need the fun, the fear, and the focus to really have top performance. We're going to talk a little bit about chemicals and how to maximize that. And one of the fascinating things you talked about in the book is the necessity for some level of stress and that different people actually need different levels of stress to make them perform at peak performance. Absolutely. There's not one recipe that fits everyone. We all have a genetic predisposition, how many chemicals are produced in our brain. If you look at the brain, there's lots of small little chemicals. They're called neurotransmitters and neurohormones. And we don't have the same amounts of them in our brain, and they don't play the same role in our brain. And some people, for example, have a very active dopamine system. Researchers call them um, sensation seekers, or you could even call them dopamine junkies. And these people have a mutation in their DRD4 receptor for dopamine. And when that happens, you become very um, stress-seeking. What you need to perform at your best is a lot of change, a lot of challenge. You might be one of these people flying to five different countries in one week, and you absolutely love it. These people don't go into burnout. They need constant challenge. You can think of somebody like, for example, Richard Branson, who um, has um, founded 500 companies in his life. You know, he's constantly going and doing new things. And people like this, they require and they seek the challenge, otherwise they're understimulated. While some other people have less a less active dopamine system, and for them, for example, serotonin, which is another neurotransmitter, play, might play a bigger role. And with them it's important to don't uh, introduce too much challenge and to not introduce too much change, and then they will perform at their best. So it's highly individual under which circumstances people thrive. You know, when I read that, Frederica, I found that it might explain some of the differences, you know, between men and women and, and partners and husbands and wives where, oh, yeah, yes. doesn't it? Like, it really made sense to me. It makes so much sense. And if you think about it, uh, you know, in all these leadership programs for women, and I can tell you that I've seen many of them, and, you know, I, I appreciate them, obviously, being a woman myself, but most of these programs, they make one fatal mistake. They try to change the women. So they're teaching women to be assertive and to lean in and to do stuff. So they're basically teaching women to behave like a man, which is not... A very good strategy. What you should be doing is to change the work environment so that women can be naturally successful without having to change a thing. 
And if you look at men and women on average, you will find that, you know, dopamine is driven by testosterone. When you have more testosterone in your body, it triggers dopamine. And the combination of dopamine and testosterone will make for somebody who's very competitive and who really is seeking challenges and who performs best when the environment is very challenging and constantly changing. While most women have a more active oxytocin and estrogen system, and in this situation, you become more risk-averse. And it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view that when you take care of small children, you're not going to do crazy things um, and explore new environments. You're going to be a bit more conservative, so you will be more relaxed and more high-performing in an environment that is less of a challenge. Which does not mean that women perform worse or that women are less intelligent. We know that women are, on average, as intelligent as men and as high-performing as men, but they need a different environment than men to perform well. And that makes total sense. I've heard stories where if women were in charge of certain companies, that they wouldn't have gone bankrupt or they wouldn't have made such rash decisions. And when I read your book, it was like I was given a new lens to look at it. And I was like, well, oxytocin versus testosterone would also mean empathy and more emotional intelligence, perhaps from an oxytocin lead. Absolutely. And you know what also, what I think is so sad very often the women that get hired at the very top or the ones that make it, that become partner at, at big consulting companies or who will become very successful board members, very often these women have the genetic makeup of a man. Obviously not gender-wise, but their brain might be having more testosterone. When you look genetically at the brain of these women, they are just as male, as a male brain, so they don't add more diversity. I think what we need is more normal women in leadership position, not just the one that survived in these environments. And then you would really have more empathy in, in these situations. I'm not speaking of everyone, but many of the female leaders that I get to see in my work are very similar in their behavior, in their thinking, as their male colleagues. And it's not because they have to, Frederica. I agree with you, and I actually think it's one of the great shames of our society that we have to fit the norms rather than change society or change how business works to fit diversity and the way business should be done. Yes. And if I look at a country like Sweden, uh, where I have spent a couple of years living, so I, I have seen the work culture there, and it's adapted so that women and men can be successful because they don't work so long hours and they don't have a very competitive environment. It's more trust-based and it's more co you know, co cooperative rather than competitive. So women are in many leadership positions in Sweden and they have more equality because I think they have in general a more women-friendly work environment. Going back to what you talked about from a neurodiversity perspective, you will get better decisions because you get more rounded decisions. Every angle is taken care of. Yes, absolutely. And you need somebody who loves the kind of task you hate. You know, if everybody on your team was the same, then nobody would want to do the kind of jobs you don't like. 
It's good to have somebody who loves to take attention to the detail. And these would, for example, people do who have a very active serotonin system, people like lawyers and doctors, uh, you know, jobs where you have to pay attention to the detail. If you, if you are a lawyer and you don't read the fine print on page 35 because you kind of got the big picture, that can lead to big mistakes and a lot of money lost for your company. While you also need the people who see the big picture and who just take a quick look at things and see them, you know, get a, get a good overall picture. And these people um, have a different genetic made it cap than the ones who will look for the fine print. You need both of them in a team. This is brilliant because it leads nicely to what you talk about in the book about the four different personality types within your company and how the chemicals control, if you will, the people's behavior. Yes. This is Dr. Helen Fisher's research on uh, neurochemistry. And what she did was originally trying to find out why one person falls in love with another, which I thought was a fascinating question. That's how I came across her research, because I wanted to understand why do certain people fall in love with each other, you know? And what she found is that it's all about personality. Personality in your brain is determined by your neurochemical signature, that's how she calls it. So this is about how these four brain systems interact with each other. And the four brain systems are dopamine system, the serotonin system, the testosterone system, and the estrogen system. And depending on how active each of these systems is in your brain, you get a different personality. And what she found is that certain personality styles will fall in love with each other which might not be as relevant for the business world, but I could see that this could be easily transferred to the business world. And actually, many years later, that's exactly what she's doing. She now transferred her research to the business world and she's studying, you know, how different personality styles interact with each other at work. Frederica, you talk about these people, you give them different titles, which I think is great, the explorer, the builder, the negotiator, and the director. It'd be great to share that with our audience. Well, what she found is that, you know, you have the explorers, which are people with a very active dopamine system. We already got into that a little bit. So it's these people that constantly are looking for new things, very curious, very energetic. They always have a lot of interest in different things. This does not mean that these people have to be extroverted. So it could also be somebody who reads a lot of book or books or or an artist who, um, you know, has a lot of creativity and paints the most fantastic pictures. It could also be an explorer who goes and climbs rocks and uh, goes and explores the world and goes to the North Pole. It can be all kinds of people who just have a, you know, a thirst for life. Um, that's what distinguishes the dopamine system in your brain, that you're always curious and, and, and looking for the next new thing. And then you have um, the what she calls the builders. The builders are people who have a very active serotonin system. They are more stable. Serotonin makes you more stable in your mood. If you look at depression, for example, people who are depressed, they don't Oh, people who are depressed have a problem with their serotonin system and that's why their mood is not stable. So people who have a very active serotonin system, they will be very loyal, 
Um, you can rely on them. They will check that email twice before sending it out. They will read the fine print in a long contract. And if you, you know, let's say you had knee surgery tomorrow and you could either choose the doctor who's very adventurous and who always tries out new things and who gets easily bored, or you could have the doctor who has done that this year already 300 times and he's going to do it another time with you tomorrow and he will do it the exact same way he always does it and pay attention to all the details you know which one would you pick easy decision easy decision so you very often people think the builders are a bit boring but that's not true but, you know, there's lots of professions where you just need people who love routine and who love stability. And these people are very important to our society. When you move into a house, you better make sure that the person who designed the building paid attention to all the little details such as, you know, is this going to crash if there's an earthquake tomorrow? Right? So you want people who pay attention to details and who can be trusted and uh, when when doing their job and then you have people that are called uh, directors directors are very direct it's uh, um, an expression of the testosterone system and not only men have a testosterone system also women have testosterone um, that plays an active role in their brain and testosterone will make you very tough-minded, very direct. It will help you to see the big picture. You don't get so lost in all the detail. And you don't have to guess with somebody who's a director. My husband is a director and, you know, I don't have to read his mind and think, what is he thinking? He will tell me, right? And <laughs> you will get a very direct answer no matter what you ask him. Sometimes these people can seem a bit rude, but um, not necessarily. So, this is the kind of people you very often see at the top of companies because they make quick decisions and they, they will see the big picture and they will say, one, two, three, this is how we do it, bang, bang, bang. And they um, have a lot of strategic thinking and they excel at logical thinking. And then finally, we have people that we call negotiators. And for them, oxytocin and estrogen play a very active role in the brain. These people have very... Uh, good social skills, are very empathetic, they have very good verbal skills, they know how to express themselves. So we have these four different brain systems and we all have these four systems in our brain and depending how active each of these systems is in your brain, um, depending on that you get your individual neuronal signature and this makes up your personality. That's brilliant because it really, really puts science behind neurodiversity and because everybody's talking about diversity but the reactions by most corporations are race and sex and that type of diversity while this is the real diversity this is the where the real success comes from yes you know you could have a board or that looks like the united nations and still everybody <laughs> thinks the same and even the women that are hired very often if you would take a look at their brain they think you know, you would think it's a male brain, the way they're thinking. People tend to hire people who are more like themselves. It's only natural. We enjoy being around people who are similar to ourselves. It makes our brains feel safe. We love being surrounded by people who think 
like we think ourselves, but it just doesn't help much when your company needs innovation and when you need people who take care of your blind spots. And I think when, for example, when you try to increase diversity, it's much better to hire people who have a different neuronal signature from yourself than to look at age and gender and race. You mentioned age there, Frederica, because I think this is a really important one where society, if society is enabling people to live longer, and but but yet society is asking people to retire at 65 when they have the most experience possible in their lives it, that does not make sense to me what you can see is that as we age a part of our brain that's called the basal ganglia gathers a lot of information that's a part of your brain where experience is stored and what happens is that you can make decisions a lot faster and more accurate, accurately there, you develop something that is called expert intuition. Let me explain what that is. When you take people who have a lot of experience and you give them limited time and limited information to solve a problem, they will make a better decision than if you were to give them unlimited time and unlimited information. Experts make very quick, intuitive gut decisions and they excel at this. Let you know, for example, let's say you have worked as an HR manager and you've been hiring people for a long time. You will probably be able to identify a good candidate within just um, seconds, actually, because you will just take a look at a CV and you will see that somebody fits for the job in a very short time. You might go through the process of, you know, filling out these papers and making five different interviews to make sure that this person is good for the job. But experts usually recognize within seconds whether somebody is a good fit or not. But that's not very politically correct in our society. So people always have to hire a consultant or somebody who will justify their gut decisions afterwards. You can see that a lot with doctors. When you're a doctor and you see a patient, you might sometimes instantly, intuitively recognize that this person has a serious condition. You might not be able to say why. You just, it's some, your brain will subconsciously connect all the dots. You see maybe that this patient is a bit pale and you see the person is shivering and somehow your brain is subconsciously figuring out that this person has some very bad condition that you should check. But you can't say why. You will just quickly say, you know, I think this person has this and that. But if you're wrong, the patient could sue you, right? So you can't order treatment based on that gut decision. And then you might go and send the blood of this person to the laboratory to do all of these tests. But it's, do it's done... After the fact, very often experts do what is called defensive decision-making. They make a quick gut decision, and then afterwards they order a consultant to do all the analysis, or they send in blood samples to a laboratory to check all the facts because they don't want to be made responsible for a decision that is based on intuition, even though it might have been the best possible decision right? this person could make. 
it makes perfect sense, especially we're seeing the rise of artificial intelligence. And this, to me, makes sense where the artificial intelligence can be the backup. So the decisions can be made quicker. You don't have to hire a consultant and go through that delay process. And, and there's studies showing that man and machine together make much better decisions. Yes, and I think that's such a brilliant solution because if you don't have artificial intelligence, what will happen is that the doctor might have a quick, intuitive idea, but he's not allowed to act on that. And then you have to run all of these tests and it's delaying the process. And these, this time delay can be crucial for the patient. I don't see an artificial intelligence as a threat to humanity. You know, very often people ask me because I say, as a neuroscientist, do you, don't you think that's scary? You know, what's going to happen to all of it? I think we can use that to really um, help us in our everyday lives. I think we should use the power of these machines. They will, in my opinion, never have emotions. They won't take over our planet. They won't think by themselves. But they can be a, a good um, helping, how do I put this? They, they can really help us to focus on the more essential things and to leave all the rest to the machines. Again, this ties back nicely to Yes, but we need to look after our brains. And, and you give some great hacks of how we can do this. For example, we might talk about the importance of sleep and exercise. Oh, the, I cannot emphasize the importance of these enough. If people ask me, how can I exercise my brain? I usually say, you know, exercise your body. That will help your brain. The most important thing you can do for your brain and for your brain health and your emotional and physical and mental well-being is to exercise physically because your brain and your body are connected and it's not a one-way street it's a two-way road when you think um, positive thoughts it will send um, positive hormones into your body and make your body feel better. And when you exercise, it will actually help your brain to produce um, new neurochemicals. And then the dopamine and serotonin levels in your brain will find an optimum, optimal level and that will improve your emotional well-being. And then your brain is producing something that is called the brain-derived neurotrophic growth factor, BDNFGF, which is a substance that helps you to make new neuronal connections and to grow new neurons in a part of your brain that is called the hippocampus, which is important for learning. And exercise also helps you to get rid of negative stress hormones such as cortisol. So if you think about it, our ancestors, when they were in a threatful situation, they would be either fighting or running away, right? And in these situations, cortisol gets removed from your body. While today, when people have a threatful situation, for example, in their office, they won't run and they won't fight physically. And then all of that cortisol just gets stuck in their body, you know, because if you don't move, the cortisol builds up. The best way to feel better about a stressful situation is to go out for a run for half an hour. And then that cortisol gets automatically removed from your system. 
back to the aging, like I, I certainly feel people stop exercising as they get older. And as a result, you know, they get declined, they get cognitive decline. Yes, and I, I think it's so important you say that because people think that they get cognitive decline because they age, when in reality they get cognitive decline because they don't move enough. A person who works out at 80 can have a better mental performance than a person at 20 who doesn't work out. Exercise has a huge impact on our brain. And as you said, because of all that experience stored in the basal ganglia, you're actually enabling it by having a healthy brain as well. Absolutely. If you think about it, if you're an older person and you exercise regularly, this will keep your brain in shape. And this will make sure that you have all of these neurochemicals that make your brain faster and more efficient. And then on top of that, you have all of that experience in your basal ganglia, which will help your decision making and will which will give you um, the ability to make good intuitive decisions back to the workplace again we talk about multitasking and you mentioned the phone i think this is an essential one because there's a myth about multitasking that that suggests you're a better worker you actually throw light on that subject yes what happens is that people who think that they are very good at multitasking are usually the worst. Research shows, you know, there was a research where they asked people, how good are you at multitasking? And some said, I'm great at it. I do it all the time. And others said, you know, I'm really not a good multitasker. And then they actually tested people in a multitasking setting. And they found that the ones who said, I'm great at multitasking were the one who performed the worst. Because they don't notice this anymore. They are so used to multitasking that they don't, don't realize anymore how disturbing it can actually be. If you think about it, when you multitask, you make 50% more mistakes and you also need 50% more time to complete the task because your brain needs to switch every time. Every time you get distracted, your brain needs about 20 minutes to get back to the um, condition of focus you were in before. So every time you get distracted, it takes you 20 minutes to go back into deep focus. That's a huge waste of time. Absolutely. And when you think of an organization, we put so little time into this to training our people. Yes, we want to be more efficient and we bring in efficiency experts. We're not dealing with the problems staring us in the face. Everybody, I think, knows that multitasking is a problem, but then people continue to do it anyhow. And why do we do this? It's because if you think about it, our brains are wired to detect new things. We love finding out new things. So every time a new email pops up on your screen, your brain screams, oh, something new, I need to check it out. And then dopamine is released in your brain and your reward system is activated. We are just um, addicted to novelty. And that's why our brain has such a hard time stopping it. So even if I give you a lecture on multitasking and I tell you you make 50% more mistakes and it takes you 50% more of your time to complete the task, people will say, oh, that's awful. And then they'll go back and they continue to multitask because um, multitasking is addictive. 
there's a lot of dopamine released every time something new comes up your brain goes into addiction and another dimension and there's a new study that came out last week that showed um that when people check their cell phones and when people get addicted to social media there's a huge social component on that too we get so easily addicted to all to our phones because it connects us to other people and our brain is very social our brains want to connect to other people so what happens is that cell phones and social media are so addictive because there's the novelty aspect always new things happening and our brains love that and release dopamine and there's this social aspect it connects us to other people it makes us be part of a community and then oxytocin is released and that mix of oxytocin and dopamine is highly addictive let's tie it back because i know you're 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 an amazing mother of five which is incredible given all the work <laughs> you do and you've written this book you've managed that job as well and from a child perspective, there's many of our audience who have children or they have they, they intend to have children in the future. And this is so important, isn't it? Because we're training our children to actually diminish the power of their brain. Totally. And what research has shown is that only during the past eight years, um, attention span has declined a few seconds. So people's attention span used to be a lot larger only 10 years back when i look at the educational system very often people will say we need to teach our kids to use computers we need more digital schools we need more modern schools i'm saying the opposite i think we need to train what i call executive control that's the one thing you can give your kids executive control is the ability of your brain to delay gratification to plan ahead and to fully focus and this is something a part of your brain is doing that is called the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex helps us to um, you know to make better long-term decisions there was the classical marshmallow experiment that i think many people know when you gave uh, in the 60s when they gave the five-year-old children the choice of either getting to eat a marshmallow now or to wait 15 minutes and to then get two marshmallows and the children who were able to wait for 15 minutes were the ones who were more successful later in life and they had higher income and they were more happy, they were happier overall. And I think what we need to teach our children is executive control. They need to learn to wait and they need to learn to delay gratification and to work hard to get better at something. And you don't do that when you play video games because when you play video games and when you chat on social media, you always get an instant reply and you get an instant gratification and that destroys our reward system in the brain. It sets you up for failure. It's really taking care of the limbic system rather than the prefrontal cortex. Totally. You totally got that. And it, it messes up your limbic system because what we know of the limbic system is that the reward system that we have in place. So let's say you play a video game and you're a teenager and you play a video game. Every time, I don't know, I, I never play video games, but you know, every time you, you succeed at something, like you get to a new level or you... I don't know, 
you get a point or you get an instant, you know, reward of some kind or the other. So you get a lot of quick rewards and that ties into your addiction system in the brain because what we know is that the reward system in the brain is the same that gets activated when we take drugs. So if you get a lot of reward for very little work, that's highly addictive and then you need more of the same. So what basically happens is that you're used that you get used to the fact that for every little success you have, you get an instant reward. And life doesn't work that way. If you get your first job and you do a good job for an hour, there's nobody patting your back and constantly saying, good job, great job. Oh, you know, you're a ra- I'll give you a raise. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to work for half a year to get a reward. I worked on my book for several years and now I'm getting the reward for it, right? But there was nobody sitting next to me constantly telling me, good job, Frederica, keep on writing, you know, do another page. You have to learn to reward yourself and you have to learn to work even though nobody's sitting there constantly rewarding you. And teenagers usually get so used to these instant and quick rewards that they have a hard time focusing on things and delaying gratification and that can really set you up for trouble fantastic and and it really ties into we talked about you know the basal ganglia and the experience that's stored there but it's also responsible as you tell us in the book for our habits and our habits can really control the success of our lives oh absolutely i think what you need is a few good habits and that will take care of all the rest. That's what's called a keystone habit. You know, if for example, if you install exercise as a habit in your life, then not much bad can happen to you because it keeps your brain stable. But it's very hard to change habits. People have a very hard time doing that. I think about 98% of all New Year's resolutions fail. And that's because people take the wrong approach to habit change. And habits then, from a workplace perspective, how do we master them? You talk, for example, about linking them to cues. Yes. You always need to understand, well, what I'm talking about there is um, something called intention implementation. And what happens is that when you, for example, decide you want to work out more often, okay, let's say you want to lose weight, you decided to get more fit, you heard that exercise is good for your brain, and then you say, I will work out more often. That doesn't work because it's very unspecific. What you need to do is you need to define when and in which situations you will work out more often. So you need to identify and define a cue. So what you should say, for example, is when I get home for work, then I head to the gym. So you need to make an if-then connection, and that will hugely increase your success rate. Research shows that when you make an if-then connection, Like, um, when this happens, then I do this and that. Then people really follow through with their habits. It's called implementation intentions, and it's hugely effective. From a business perspective, then, we can actually design companies to work this way. You know, if, if this becomes a mindset and we understand habits and we understand how to enable different personality types by understanding the, the neurochemical makeup, we can have much more successful companies. 
Absolutely, because you will understand your customers better, right? If you understand why people behave the same the way they do, and you can create a work environment that people love. And I think when people love the work environment, they will work so much better. Research shows that happy workers perform better. So if you're able to understand the neurochemical makeup of the people working for you, then you can allow for more diversity in the way people work. I think that's very important. If you look at introverts and extroverts, for example, you will need to accommodate for very different work environments. There's not the one solution that fits for everyone. I know one company, for example, where the CEO was an extrovert and he loved talking to people and he was very social and fun to be around, you know, everybody loved him and he loved being surrounded by people. So he had this architect design this new office. He put a lot of money into it and it was basically this glass building, right? It was like a huge office space. He said, oh, I want coffee everywhere so people can interact and open doors and, you know, all of this glass so people can see each other and I will improve communication among people. And then a year later, if you would, if you were to walk through the building, you would see that people would hang clothes over, you know, <laughs> somehow they would build little shields. So you would see that some people would start, you know, having a lot of plants in their office so that they would almost grow like a small forest around <laughs> them to protect themselves because people hated the glass. You would have people, you had no personal zone anymore. Some people are introverts, so they don't want to be disturbed at work all the time. They don't want to talk to all of their co-workers. They don't want to have coffee nonstop, right? Some people just want to work and focus on that and not be disturbed. And then the office looked awful because all of the glass was covered by stuff of people trying to hide themselves. So I think when we design the perfect office, we need to take a look at the kind of people we are working with and what they would really enjoy. That's fantastic advice. And there's one thing I went off on a tangent on. I mentioned exercise, but I also mentioned sleep. And you emphasize massively the importance of this. And it's something I'm not good at because I'm probably a six-hour sleeper. And I actually find that's my optimum sleep. But, you know, when you look at sleep, I'm not talking even here from a business perspective, which it does help massively. But from a personal perspective, it actually enables a happier brain. Absolutely. Because what happens during sleep is that your neurochemicals get restored. So during night, your body produces dopamine and serotonin that stabilizes your mood. And dopamine uh, is also a feel-good neurochemical. And also during sleep, memory is restored. So short-term memory are transferred to long-term memory during sleep. And if you don't sleep enough, then you don't remember well. And that can be stressful in itself. So if, for example, you have to study for an exam and you're sacrificing sleep to get some extra study time, that's not a very good strategy because during sleep, our memory is formed. So we really need sleep, both for our emotional well-being and for our mental performance. And you say as well, like it reduces the outbursts we might have, it reduces access to the limbic system. 
Yes, and what happens also is that negative stress hormones are stripped away from your memories during night. So it also has a positive impact on your stress level because it re reduces level of um, stress hormones during sleep. I think it's very important to sleep, and you can see that people who don't sleep enough, they very often go into burnout. I personally really have made sleep a priority. And I can tell you that with five kids, that's not always easy. No. But I I really think, you know, if you want to train your brain and if you want to be high performing, two hours of extra sleep will do a better job than some fancy brain training programs or some of the gadgets you will see. But sleep will really improve your performance and your well-being. Wow, okay. Well, there's one for my list to work on for sure, uh, Frederica. Last thing I'd love to talk about, because so we, we know about neuroplasticity and that our brain can be shaped for the better and also for the worse with habits, the bad habits, etc. But one of the really important things that you mentioned as well is meditation and mindfulness. Yes. It has been shown that when people do an eight-week mindfulness training, it really transforms their brains. If you take a brain scan before you learn meditation and after an eight-week program, you will see a different brain. It has a positive impact on your prefrontal cortex, which is what you need for the executive control, so for delaying gratification, for planning ahead, for making good decisions. It has a good impact on um, your social pathway, so mindfulness... Uh, meditation can improve your empathy it will make you a better and more compassionate person which i think is great and then it will also make you a part of your brain that is called the insula thicker which has the impact of increasing your self-awareness and your body awareness so you will be more sensitive to small signals so when something happens in your environment you can act faster because you're going to be more mindful you're going to be more aware of what's going on around you and it also improves your immune system people who do that get sick less often it has a large impact the only thing you need to know is how to integrate that into your day so that you actually do it because you know that's i think the hard thing about it to find a way to integrate it into your life this is what i love about this book it intertwines with your habits, your cues, and then you know how to integrate it well into your into your workday. Frederica, I could talk to you all day. I think this book is fabulous. It gives so many hacks on how to have a better life and a better work life and a better organization, and I highly recommend it. Frederica, where can people find out more about you and your work? Yes, if you want to find me, you can check out my website, which is fabulous-brain.com. So it's fabulous-brain.com or you can find me on Twitter at fabulousbrain or you can find me on LinkedIn. And I really look forward to hearing from you guys. Frederica Fabritius, author of The Leading Brown, Powerful Science-Based Strategies for Achieving Peak Performance. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for this great conversation. It's so good to talk to somebody who has such a great understanding of the topic. So thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>